0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. Today's one of those shows where we're going to be looking backwards and forwards, and then backwards and forwards. Because a bunch of stuff has happened of late that we want to talk about, but a bunch of cool stuff is coming up in the future that we also want to talk about. So today will we be unstuck in time, like Billy Pilgrim in Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five. A fine book, if not Vonnegut's best. For our money, Vonnegut's classic is Cat's Cradle. Given that KDBS does radio productions on a regular basis, and, uh, and the fact that this is also an interest of Dr. Andy Jones, good literature, I mean by that, we thought we may be able to collaborate in the future and find a way to produce Cat's Cradle for KDBS, but that is very much a work in progress. Uh, we may have to obtain rights. To, we're not sure how to do that. If you know how to do that, if you're somebody over at UC Davis' law school and has, has an idea about those sort of intellectual rights, by all means, drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. We will, in our second segment, out of necessity, take a look at the second of the debates between President Obama and Mitt Romney. You may have noticed that this year they're making no effort to outreach to the third and fourth and fifth parties across this country, although the libertarians apparently are on the ballot in every state, uh, I think actually in every state, And while we have touted the website 270towin.com as the most accurate way of assessing the status of the presidential campaign, uh, we're wondering at this point if there's been some fudging of some of the states in these polls. Uh, This is an inevitable part of the process. Uh, Pollsters are hired by this party or that party to produce polls that will help them, meaning they're not always objective, to say the least. But by averaging them out, one generally gets an idea of where things are going. And since the first presidential debate two weeks ago, wherein President Obama by most accounts looked distracted and Mitt Romney looked just cocky and confident as he spewed out his uh, usual nonsense, well, we watched that a couple weeks back by turning off the sound and just observing the body language. And uh, my take with Mr. McMillan was that, uh, you know, Romney's going to be perceived as having done better simply by his body language, and I think that has pretty much been the case, regardless of what nonsense either man was spouting. But curiously, on 270 wincom Romney has indeed shown a, uh, a surge going from about a 5% probability of winning the election two weeks ago to something like 27% on the eve of debate number one. We're going to talk about how debate number two is being perceived in instant analysis in our second segment. And yes, as much as instant analysis has been uh, decried over the years uh, with Twitter and social media, it's it's now more popular than ever. I do want to note that a very refreshing trend in politics of late has been the fact-checking you now see being openly done in media outlets uh, under assault from the Republicans dating back to the Nixon era. The media has been shy about trying to call politicians on their BS. But with uh, Dick Cheney safely in retirement, with an artificial heart now, I think that (laughs) they're deciding they can be a little more aggressive in actually analyzing the news. What a concept. It is sort of curious that uh, back in 1968, when the Republicans launched their campaign to, uh, to cow media outlets, leading the charge was Roger Ailes. A media consultant brought in by Richard Nixon to create the new Nixon. Ailes succeeded pretty, pretty well. In fact, uh, uh, it was his hiring of a Bush cousin and putting him in the, in the booth on election night 2000 that called Florida for Bush and started off an avalanche where the other networks all called the election for Bush, way ahead of what was sensible, but gave Bush apparently just enough momentum to, well, steal the election. There's some folks that think Roger Ailes is hard at work uh, at Fox News, trying to steal this one. We're going to try to follow developments in the weeks ramping up to uh, Election Day next month. And by the way, of course you know when we throw out opinions like these that they, like pretty much anything heard on this program, does not necessarily represent the views of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. But, uh, but doggone it, studies show that we're right almost, almost every time. All right, let's start the program as we like to do with On This Date in History. And yes, we'll talk about Felix Baumgartner before the segment is out, too. But our date in question is the 18th of October. It was on October 18th in the year 816 that Pope Stephen IV crowned Louis I, the son and successor of Charlemagne, Holy Roman Emperor, thereby solidifying the ties between the papacy and secular power in Europe. Of course, we would note that ever since uh, the Sumerians set down to, to found civilization 10,000 years ago, religion and centers of power have always kind of gravitated to one another. And speaking of religion and power, it was on October 18th in 1469 that Ferdinand of Aragon married Isabella of Castile, thus beginning a cooperative reign that would unite the nation and make it a dominant world power. Ferdinand and Isabella were militant Christians and spent their first years trying to root out the last remnants of Islam from southern Spain, which they succeeded in doing. And of course, Spain then became a world power because they threw the dice on Chris Columbus and came up with a seven. And again, speaking of religion and power, it was October 18th, in 1685, that Louis XIV rescinded the Edict of Nantes, which deprived French Protestants of all civil rights. All right, this is an interesting day in history. On October 18th in 1854, in the Austin Manifesto, three U.S. diplomats urged Secretary of State William Marcy to seize Cuba from Spain. Their motive? To expand American slave territory and prevent a slave uprising like the one in Haiti. Speaking of the Caribbean, on October 18th in 1898, one year after Spain granted Puerto Rico self-rule, American troops took control of the Caribbean nation. U.S. forces invaded Puerto Rico near the end of the Spanish-American War and took it with almost no resistance. Puerto Rico has been U.S. territory ever since. In fact, Puerto Rico has the distinction, I believe, of being the only territory ever to be offered statehood twice and turn it down not once but twice. Having been to Puerto Rico, this correspondent, I'd like it to be known, is in favor of the Puerto Rican independence movement. The sooner Puerto Rico can be restored to being a sovereign nation, as it was before the U.S. invasion in 1898, the better. And although it's not very important, we can't resist <laughs> this item. On, on October 18th, in 1922, Robin Hood, starring American actor Douglas Fairbanks, opened at Grauman's Egyptian Theater in Hollywood. It turns out Doug Fairbanks was not much of an archer. As a publicity stunt, he loosed arrows from a New York hotel and accidentally shot a man through an open window. And on this date in 1989, having disbanded the Communist Party and torn down the barbed wire separating Hungary from Austria, the Hungarian government amended its constitution to allow a multi-party political system and free elections. And finally... On October 18th in 1989, NASA launched the U.S. space probe Galileo on its spectacularly successful journey to Jupiter. It would have been even more successful had not the main antenna jammed while they were trying to unfurl it. JPL engineers were apparently able to uh, re-engineer a workaround, which involved a small tape recorder on board the spacecraft, and which enabled it to record data for later transmission and thus uh, send most of the pictures It was intended to. Galileo happened to be traveling to Jupiter when comet Shoemaker-Levy was calculated to be on a collision course with the gas giant, and of course the photographs taken by Galileo supplemented those from observatories here on Earth very nicely. Just another reason why we're big fans of NASA here at Radio Parallax. Our quote of the day comes from Alfred Nobel, who said, I intend to leave after my death a large fund for the promotion of the peace idea, but I am skeptical as to its results. It does appear that Nobel's skepticism uh, was earned in the wake of the Nobel Committee awarding the Peace Prize to Barack Obama upon taking office, apparently because he wasn't George W. Bush. This is the guy that plans to end the war in Afghanistan at the end of 2014 a war that is already, by a wide margin, the longest-lasting war in American history. All right, on a lighter note, our jokes of the day come from David Letterman, or his writers anyway. Said Dave recently, here's what's great about America. You can now buy waffle-flavored vodka. You see, good things are happening under Obama. And I believe on the same show Dave added, as a bonus for his audience and us, Dr. Phil had his car stolen. He bought the car with money he earned exploiting kooks and crackpots on TV. All right, our stats of the day are as follows. Stat number one, the U.S. has wasted up to $60 billion in payments to contractors who aided war efforts in Iraq and Afghanistan. That's what an independent commission found. Now, that is one out of every $4 spent on war zone contractors in the past decade. That comes from the Wall Street Journal. We're pretty sure that's conservative. Stat number two, according to the Washington Post, Americans aged 60 or over still owe $36 billion on student loans. That's according to new research. Apparently some older Americans are still paying off their original loans, where others took on new debt after returning to school, and many have co-signed for loans with their children or grandchildren. $36 billion, is a lot of money, but when you think about it, uh, Bush and Cheney were spending that uh, for the war in Iraq every 12 weeks or less, if you calculate it out at $3 billion a week. But, of course, it's hard to calculate what we spend on these wars because they're not part of the Pentagon budget. Thanks to accounting chicanery that keeps the public less upset about it than they might otherwise be, yes, apparently all those funds that we spend on, on wars are somehow kept separate. I, I don't understand it either, except I know that it's uh, done that way to keep you and I less concerned and less upset all right let's take a flying leap into the good the bad and the ugly All right, according to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for putting that degree to use after Jamie Fox, a 22-year-old from Great Britain with a degree in music, was given a job as a human scarecrow on a farm. Yes, apparently Fox will put his <laughs> degree in music to use at $400 a week, scaring off partridges by playing an accordion, ukulele, and cowbell. What was that quote we had on the show a couple weeks back, Mr. McMillan? I'm not sure we used it, though. Uh, but it came from Tom Waits, and it was that a gentleman is someone who can play the accordion, but won't. As for the ukulele, or more properly, ukulele, we kind of like that one. But at any rate, we do hope that the market will open up here in America for more human scarecrows. I'd unravel every riddle, for and the middle. All right, it was a bad week last week for coping with rejection in the wake of Gerald and Lily Chow of Hong Kong suing Mark Zinni, a college admissions consultant and former Harvard professor, when their two sons didn't get into an Ivy League university. The Chows say they gave Zinni more than $2 million to get their kids into elite schools by any means necessary. We'll see if we can't bag on some so-called elite colleges a little bit later on today's show, or, or soon. But uh, to round out our three customary items, we would note that it was an ugly, actually a truly ugly week last week, for eating contests. We've been pretty clear on this program that we think eating contests pretty much of every stripe probably ought to be banned. Well, this item may help in its own small way. According to the week, the winner of a bug-eating contest died in the midst of his victory celebration last week after downing dozens of live three- to four-inch cockroaches on top of worms and crickets. Apparently, Edward Archibald of West Palm Beach, Florida, became ill shortly after the contest ended and collapsed, according to the Broward County Sheriff's Office. Archibald was taken to a nearby hospital where he was pronounced dead. Archibald had defeated 30 other contestants to win the grand prize, which was a pet python. <laughs> yes, down in Florida where loosed Burmese pythons are causing a major environmental catastrophe. This just, this just rounds out this story. They apparently do not know down in Florida. Uh, they're awaiting the results of an autopsy to determine what it has killed, Archibald. We think it may have been bad karma. According to a witness on the scene, Sarah Barnard, he would push everything into his mouth and try to swallow it with water. He ate a very large number of insects. Now, by the way, eating insects itself is is not a hazardous activity, but we would counsel anyone and everyone not to try and consume them as part of an eating contest. All right, and speaking of eating insects, we have an item left over from, uh, from last week's show that we didn't quite get to, which was that uh, scientists have uncovered a 100-million-year-old piece of amber that shows a spider inside about to feast on a wasp. Researchers say this is the first uh, first item like this ever found. Scientists in Oregon reported this uh, based on a fossil dug up in the Hukawang Valley in northern Burma. This is the first ever fossilized record of a spider about to attack its prey, according to Oregon State University researchers. Zoology professor there said that this juvenile spider was about to make a meal out of a tiny parasitic wasp, but never quite got to it. The wasp was apparently in the spider's web. Spider was watching it for some time, presumably, when tree resin flowed over and captured both of them in the act. It's estimated that the spider and wasp were from the early Cretaceous period between 97 and 110 million years ago. This piece of amber apparently also trapped the body of a second male web weaver, providing early evidence that spiders were social and hung out together. In this case, uh, both the spider and the wasp species are extinct, but researchers said that the wasp was a distant cousin of species that today feeds on spider eggs, suggesting that this attack was in its own way payback. Maybe, but this research is also in its own way an example of anthropomorphizing all right, Radio Parallax does want to congratulate daredevil Felix Baumgartner, who pulled off his effort to jump from the, well, the highest jump in history. I guess in this case, he wound up going 128,000 feet up, a mile higher than he anticipated, and jumping out in an effort to break the sound barrier. We thought that Joe Kittinger had done that uh, back in 1960, but apparently he didn't. And uh, Mr. Kittinger's record for the longest time in a uh, in a... Skydive apparently emerged intact from Baumgartner's effort, probably because he was in in New Mexico and had 5,000 less feet of ground below him than you would uh, at sea level. But his main goal was to try and break the sound barrier, which by estimates, uh, apparently he did 65 years to the day after General Chuck Yeager did so in his Bell X-1 rocket plane. We did have a chance to speak to General Yeager a couple of years back. We're going to see if we can dig out an appropriate quote uh, from some of the uh, some of the um, track that I, I think we have never used. At any rate, uh, we watched uh, the whole thing live. I hope you did too. It, it was pretty interesting, and uh, we do have to congratulate Felix Baumgartner. Now, we couldn't quite make out uh, Felix's words as he jumped from the capsule. They didn't quite have the ring of Neil Armstrong, but uh, but in retrospect, apparently what he said was, Sometimes you have to be really high to see how small you really are. I'm going home now. We'll have to see how Felix does with his endorsements that are sure to come to him uh, in the wake of this, uh, this effort. But uh, we have noticed here on Radio Parallax that uh, Austrians involved in some fringe sporty type activities sometimes do pretty well in California. They may even get elected governor. All right, we've got a lot of directions to go on the show, but a fair amount of time to do it. So let's take a break right now and do a little reset. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stay tuned for more fun. We'll start by talking about the debates, I think, in our second segment.